Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Bryant Monte. And I'm Nicole Franklin. Bryant, we head back to San Pedro today. Yay. And for good reason, of course. Well, today we want to welcome a decorated veteran in both the U.S. Army as well as in the California National Guard. And someone who has been awarded the Medal of Valor from Los Angeles Police Department. Yes, Major General Peter Gravitt. Thank you, sir, for coming on our show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yay. Yay. <laughs> we met you through our other friend, Joe Gatlin. Um, and we understand that San Pedro is a pretty cool place to be. You, I believe, grew up there, but were you born there? No, I I was not born here. I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. My family hails from Little Rock, Arkansas, but I've been in San Pedro, uh, California, since I was a young child. Why the move? Well, like most people that migrated from the south, uh, either to the east or to the west or to the north, mm-hmm. uh, is to um, rid uh, themselves of segregation and uh, discrimination in my family uh, chose to migrate west to the Los Angeles area. Very, nice. very nice. Uh, looking at uh, the connection between the South and the West Coast, I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize that there seems to be a definite attachment. A lot of people from the South move to the West Coast. Uh, would you say that is the case? And it seems like a lot of people from like Arkansas, Louisiana, um, different parts of the South moved to the West years ago. And still do. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think I think opportunity, uh, opportunity is one, but also a lack of uh, a discrimination and segregation is another. Although the West Coast, just like any place else in the country back in the day, has had the discrimination and segregation in certain areas, de facto segregation, if you will, uh, in that uh, you know segregation was not uh, codified in law; it was just practiced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and growing up, a lot of my friends' families were from the South. In uh, mm-hmm. those places you mentioned, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, and they migrated either to the L.A. area in the West Coast or the North in the San Francisco area uh, in California. Mm-hmm. And I think, Bryant, you've noted before that um, there's a lot of military people who tended to move West. Did you find that, Mr. Gravitt? Yes, uh, in, especially during World War II, a lot of uh, military were stationed throughout California, uh, in, in Southern California and Northern California. And um, some of those uh, military personnel that were conscripted into the military after the war were discharged and remained in California. Others who did not serve moved to California at the end of World War II, and all during the late 40s. Yes. And so did your major general did and retired, right? Retired major general? Yes. Or do you ever retire? <laughs> uh, well, they say a general never retires because uh, once you take a second oath in the military, once you make general or admiral, you take a second oath. And that mm-hmm. is that you pledge an oath to the country that you will always be on active duty. Even though you're not active, you still can be recalled to active duty. Oh. Now, recently I met a, um, he, he was also a two-star. One thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is how much work that is to get to that level. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? How did you reach that level of seniority? With a lot of help and a lot of assistance <laughs> and a lot of mentoring 
and uh, and I got some work on my part. Mm-hmm. But basically, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes commitment, and it takes someone um, looking over you and watching you and monitoring your career over a, a period of years. And uh, and you know, the military is a hierarchy, just mm-hmm. like any other institute or organization. And the harder you work, the higher you go. And uh, but you always need a help and assistance. And I've had some throughout my career. How did mm-hmm. you get started in the military? Well, that's that's kind of interesting. You know, um, my first notice of the military. Uh, my father served in World War II. By the way, he mm. he was uh, he was conscripted uh, in the army, and he was assigned to the Army Air Corps. As a matter of fact, he was signed assigned to the uh, a unit which later became a Tuskegee Airmen unit. He was enlisted soldier, a nice. private. Uh, he served in base operations. And, uh, Wonderful. And after, after the war, uh, as a young child, my first recollection of him being in the military was when he returned from the military mm-hmm. in his uniform. And mm-hmm. I couldn't have been more than, I don't know, four or five years old, and I recall him walking into the house in his uniform, and <laughs> he placed his hat on my head, and I marched around the room pretending to be a soldier. <laughs> and from that point on, I guess, you were I imagined myself being a soldier. <laughs> and then wow. later on, after I graduated high school, I enlisted in the, initially in the California Army National Guard. Mm-hmm. But you spent how many years in the military between... Uh, the National Guard as well as the Army? Well, 44 years. Wow. I spent 22 (laughs) years uh, in the Army National Guard and 22 years in the Army. And let me tell you how that happened. Mm -hmm. First of all, I joined the National Guard, and of course, I went off to the Army for training because all National Guardsmen are trained uh, in the Army. I didn't know that. I served my first tour of duty with with the Army. And then after I received my training, I returned uh, to Southern California as, an, as a part-time soldier in the National Guard where I served in the Los Angeles Police Department. Mm-hmm. And uh, following my retirement from the Los Angeles Police Department, having been in the National Guard that entire time, I returned to active duty with the Army and served another 22 years with the Army and retired from the Army. Nice. It's, a, it's a, not the usual way people have a military career, but it worked for me. <laughs> Right. And uh, I enjoyed it, and uh, it was quite different to be in the Army and then active duty, then out of the Army on inactive duty as Reserve National Guard, and then returning to the Army and serving a full career in the Army af- after that. And I served in a lot of different places in the, in the world, some nice places and some not so nice. Mm-hmm. As any former mm-hmm. military person, if better can tell you, I served in some places that I enjoyed. I served in some places I did not enjoy. More with Major General Gravit after this. And we're back with San Pedro's Major General Gravit. When you look at your experience overall, what really motivated you to be of such service? Well, as a teenager, I knew that I wanted to serve in, in the military, based on the story I just told you about my father and me seeing him in uniform. Yeah. But I also, uh, as a teenager, I served in a, a police department youth organization that mm-hmm. they had back then in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called the Deputy Auxiliary Police. These were 
teenage kids that served in a youth group sponsored by the police department. There I interacted with a lot, lots of police officers, and I realized then that that might be a career field for me. And I served in that throughout my teen years. And so uh, when I uh, returned from my initial active duty with the Army, with the Army as a National Guardsman being trained, mm-hmm. then I joined the police department and uh, continued to serve in the military as a reservist. I then served in the L.A. Police Department for a number of years until I retired from the police department. Yeah, that's <laughs> super wow. <laughs> I mean, what neighborhoods did you cover as a police officer? I never served in the Valley. Mm-hmm. It was too too far from San Pedro, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I served throughout uh, the southern part of L.A., downtown L.A., west L.A., and I served uh, in... Uh, the L.A. Harbor area, Wilmington, San Pedro, Harbor City, mm-hmm. both as a patrolman, as a traffic officer, and then uh, as a detective later on, and then as a watch commander. So I kind of covered most of the south end of Los Angeles. And then after a few years, I was actually assigned to San Pedro as a police officer and ended up patrolling my own neighborhood, oh. <laughs> which was, you know, has its advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I was able to to do that uh, effectively (laughs) without having any problems. Can we talk about race in the military as well as in the LAPD? I mean, you've navigated a lot of uh, challenges and difficulties, obstacles to get to the place where you uh, ended up retiring. What are some of the things that you experienced and how did you overcome that? Well, let me tell you about the the, uh, start with the National Guard. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. when I joined the California National Guard as a private, the California National Guard was just starting to integrate. Mm. Now, you you say integrate from what? The California National Guard, <laughs> like the mm-hmm. National Guard in almost every state at that time, was segregated. Mm-hmm. California National Guard had right. Negro units and white units. Wow. And of course, across the South, in the Deep South, there were no blacks in the National Guard at all. They were all white. At least California had had uh, black units, but they were separate from the white units. Mm-hmm. And um, I had attended a totally integrated high school, San Pedro High School, which is mostly made up of Eastern Europeans, Italians, Slavs, Greeks, uh, and some blacks and Hispanics. And so I I had no knowledge that the California National Guard was segregated until I until I joined, until I enlisted, mm-hmm. and I ended up listing in what I quickly found out was an all-black unit, and uh, I couldn't enlist in a white unit. But within a year or two, the California National Guard was totally integrated as, and this this was during the, the, uh, you know, the the 60s, uh, late Mm -hmm. 60s, as as most National Guards in most states started to slowly integrate. So in time, um, it was totally integrated. And so the first several years of my military service, I was an enlisted soldier. Matter of Mm -hmm. fact, I was a if you're a veteran yourself, you know that E1 through E9 are the enlisted ranks, and I went from E1 to E7 yeah. in about in, in about 10 mm-hmm. years. And then I went to OCS, Officer Training School, and became commissioned. Yeah. But anyway, to the point, um, th- at the same time, LAPD was also segregated, as most police agencies mm-hmm. in the country were. Mm. Up until the early 1960s, just before my time, blacks and whites did not work together in the police department. They did not patrol together. They did not work as detectives together. They did not work in uh, inside office assignments together. It was totally 
totally uh, segregated. Mm. Mm. Wow. A whole police department segregated, like never coming together, black and white, during that time, of course. That's correct. That's correct. Un- until the early 60s, and again, this is before my time, uh, just before my time, there were a couple, at that time, LA, LAPD had, uh, uh, I think, 16 police stations. Mm-hmm. And two of those police stations were staffed by black officers mm-hmm. and white officers. And black officers and white officers both in those two stations. The other stations were all white. In the two stations that were staffed with both black and white officers, the whites worked together in a car and the blacks worked together in a car. They were not integrated in the, in the patrol car. And the detective teams were a black team or a white team. And uh, it was only um, later on when uh, a new mayor came into L.A. as a as the mayor. He integrated the police department because the L.A. police chief at that time, William H. Parker, uh, ran a segregated police department. And so mm-hmm. o- over time, it became fully integrated, which like it is now. And matter of fact, in the last 10 years, we've had two black police chiefs. Yeah. Was there a noticeable difference in arrests when it came to the number of black people arrested versus black people arrested in the segregated time versus the integrated police department time? Well, yes. I mean, you know, uh, black police officers are are a victim of their training, of their background, Mm -hmm. you know, and they don't change their attitude about other blacks just because they put on a blue uniform. Hmm. And so, you know, and of course, whites, some whites, I quantify that by saying some whites right. believe that being black is a, is a crime itself. Yes. Some white officers back then, this is 40 years ago, 50, 50 years ago, would consider a crime. Black police officers would not consider it a crime. Hmm. It was just black people being black and 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 uh, and just uh um, interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was it that you saw that uh, made you want to go this route for so many years to say, you know, I really want to serve in this capacity with the Los Angeles P- Police Department because, I mean, looking at the history of the police department, doesn't really have a great history in terms of how it treated or how it treats even now uh, minorities, especially blacks. What made you stay in the in the game? Well, so I can tell you, when I first joined the LAPD, I had no knowledge at all that uh, it had a uh, had an image of, of treating blacks uh, in a disproportionate way. Hmm. Like I said, I grew up in San Pedro, a totally segregated, so totally integrated neighborhood. Yeah, and and I and I had been in a mm-hmm. police youth group uh, in my teens, and so I saw the LAPD as a good police department, <laughs> as an excellent place to work. Wow. And I wanted to be part of that. And so when I um, applied for the L.A. Police Department, four of my five uh, character references were, were white police officers yeah. because I had known them growing up. And they, they, they sort of uh, sponsored mm-hmm. me. And, 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 and my first uh, few years in the PD, I, I thought it was a good agency. And then, of course, after having been there for a while, I could see – that it wasn't, it didn't have the image that I thought it had. Mm-hmm. But I stayed there because, you know, the best time to make a change is, with, is from within. And so the few black L.A. police officers that they had back in the 60s, and there were not that many, 
all, in my case, all work very hard to make the LAPD a better a better agency. Mm-hmm. Hopefully better because you were there, of course. And you won the Medal of Valor. Can you tell us why? Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, the, the Medal of Valor is the, is the highest mm-hmm. uh, award for bravery the LAPD nice. bestows on someone. And I was in the right place at the right time to, to help and assist somebody that, that needed my assistance. Mm-hmm. Did you <laughs> did you want to tell us the story? <laughs> oh, okay. Don't be shy. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> we we all want to know more. <laughs> it was at the it was at the Los Angeles uh, Coliseum. Okay. The the city of L.A. was sponsoring uh, some uh, youth uh, sporting events at the Coliseum, and they had track and field. They had gymnastics on the field. They had. They had boxing. They had uh, a lot of different youth sports uh, during the summer on a weekend. And one of the sports they had, they had a boxing ring set up in the middle of the Coliseum field, and, and uh, the football field. And they had these, these kids uh, in boxing matches. And they were matched up based upon age and size, all teenagers. Mm-hmm. And the crowd was primarily African-American mm-hmm. with a few Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Um, a white boy and a black boy were boxing, mm-hmm. and the white boy knocked out the black boy, knocked oh. him down, and knocked him out. Oh! And I guess the crowd didn't like that, mm-hmm. and uh, they started. They some members of, of the of the attendees started uh, fights with with some white spectators in the stands. I was there off duty. On my oh. own time with a friend. Okay. And uh, uh, it's hard for me to talk about this, but anyway, one uh, white boy was being assaulted by an entire group of, of black kids. I mean, mm. really beating him, so on and so forth. That's horrible. And a friend of mine and I ran to his aid to try mm-hmm. to assist him. Mm-hmm. And we did. And this this was this was just outside the. Uh, the field area outside the tunnel in the concessions area. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we fought our way through the crowd to rescue this, this white boy. And then, of course, the crowd turned on us and were beating on us. Oh, uh, I dragged no. the, uh, I, I dragged the boy from the best I could from the crowd mm-hmm. and uh, pushed him through the turnstile entrance to the Coliseum, picked him up and pushed him through there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I cried. Then I climbed through there also after they had been beating me for quite some time. Mm. And then once on the other side, I picked him up and I ran with him for a couple of blocks on my shoulders to a to a hotel and up the stairs uh, to the roof of the hotel. All the time being chased and beaten by the members of the, of the mob. And then my goodness, came down the fire escape on the outside just as the police were arriving in the alley. And uh, and uh, and then. From that point on, I don't remember because at that point I passed out and woke up in the hospital uh, a day or two later. But uh, someone saw that action as worthy of a of an award, and I was presented the Medal of Valor. Uh, I'm picturing. I mean, it was so vivid your description. I don't even know how you did that. That I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my uh, gosh! mm -hmm. I was uh, I I was injured. Had several broken ribs. Yeah. Uh, broken nose and some other other injuries that it took me a while to recuperate. Mm-hmm. 
Is the young man okay, or mm-hmm. did he survive? Uh, no, he, he's, he's okay. He suffered brain damage. Oh. Uh, and I, I neglected to tell you that the friend of mine who was helping and assisting me mm-hmm. to do this, of course, in the, in the melee, we kind of separated and lost track of each other. Mm-hmm. But I learned later that uh, he was killed. In this riotous type oh. of act? In this. Oh. He, he, was, he, was, he was beaten to death, yes. This is terrible. I oh, wow. did the news cover this a lot. I don't remember this. Oh, it, it was it was it was covered quite extensively in the news. It was covered at the time that it happened, and then it, it was covered again once they had the ceremony where I and others were presented medals of valor, others for different different acts. And it was it was covered, it was it was covered in the news. Yes. What, what year would this have been? What what year? Uh, what the year event occurred in 1966. Mm. And the uh, the ceremony was 1967. I am so sorry you lost your friend, and that you had to witness that. You probably couldn't help yourself jumping in. I am so sorry about your friend. Well, you know, yes, uh, he had a lot of friends, uh, not just me. And matter of fact, several of us were at the coliseum together, but we were not seated together. Mm. And so I, you know, they didn't even know what was going on at the time. So. Yeah, and like you said, as an officer and a service person and a veteran, you see stuff. We have to react, uh, I guess, instinctively, and that something can change on a dime, as they say, right? It, minute by minute, yeah, hour it, by it, hour. And that changed. That changed. And but I went on. I recovered. Uh, I recovered with the blessing of the Lord, and and I had no lingering effects. Went mm-hmm. on to a full career. I was pretty much a rookie then, mm-hmm. went on to a full career in the police department and, uh, uh, and served in the National Guard simultaneously and uh, uh, retired from the police department and returned to active duty. <laughs> you just couldn't help yourself. Um. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> so people say, people Let's do me, more, how did you right? do that? How did, yeah. you, how did you have two careers? Well, reservists, whether in the Army or Marine Corps or Navy or Air Force Reserve, they have two careers, and mm-hmm. they serve two careers. And some are successful in doing that. Others do it for a while and say that's really too much. Others stick it out. I, I, I served a full career in the National Guard and then returned to active duty. And by that time, I had gone to OCS and gotten commissioned. And uh, so when I retired, when I left the National Guard, I had the rank of lieutenant colonel mm-hmm. and, uh, and then retur- went back on active duty as a lieutenant colonel and then later was promoted to uh, – to colonel, full colonel, and then later to one star, which is a brigadier general, and then later two star, which is a major general, and oh. then retired retired as a major general. So major general is above yeah. um, brigadier general. Brigadier general. Yes, a major general is above brigadier general, oh. <laughs> and a three star is is preferred is a rank is called lieutenant general. Now I know. (laughs) I had always like said I will never get that right. But lieutenant's the highest, then major, then brigadier. Yes, and then and then uh, uh, a four star general is mm -hmm. just the title of general, just general. That's a four star. Think of it this way: it's be my little general. I was going to say that. I was going to say that. That, that's how you remember. Be, Be my little general. Yes. And I can first, use that right. in a number of ways. <laughs> we'll be back right after this. 
and we're back with Major General Peter Gravitt. So when you look back at all the years of your experience, I mean, from the police department to all the years in the military, the National Guard, and looking at today's situation and circumstances within the military as well as in the police departments around the country, I mean, how, how have we progressed or regressed? Right. Well, you know, if, if you watch the news, it, it appears that everything is regressed mm. uh, because yeah. most of the news is negative, and, they don't, and most news reports only report the negative things, and they don't report the positive things that law enforcement is, in, is in, engaged in. Mm-hmm. But, but there are a lot of negative things out there, and they should be reported. I'm not diminishing that. Right. But it would appear that uh, uh, if you only watch certain news channels or radio stations, you would think that the nation is coming apart. It's not. Right. There's some good things happening out there. Most law enforcement agencies have better training now. Mm-hmm. Most have higher standards to be a police officer. Uh, and most have programs where they interact with the with the citizens of their community. It's mm-hmm. called community policing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the past, uh, police officers only interacted with the community when something negative happened. They got a call somewhere. It was very negative. And for the first time in many, many years, law enforcement is being held accountable, accountable mm-hmm. for their actions. Exactly. Unfortunately, some of those actions have resulted in the untimely and unfortunate death of some of the citizens that they are, they are sworn to protect. Yeah. So uh, things are better, but they're worse. And uh, and it, let's just hope they continue to get better. Hmm. I don't know, because you look at the police departments and police officers that go into the field, I, I just wonder, are they with the right motivation? I mean, I, I know it's a different level of motivation than, let's say, during your time. Uh, it seems like to me, uh, this is from speaking from the outside. They're more aggressive, right? They're more aggressive, more in your face, more like, hey, trigger happy. But you, you look at what's happening now, uh, what's been happening in the last five to ten years, and you wonder, where do these guys come from? Well, I, I can tell you. A lot of them don't that, have military experience also. I want to throw that in there, by the way. Y- yes. Mm. I, I can tell you that individuals going to law enforcement uh, for different motivations, okay? And some positive and some not positive. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some mm-hmm. police officers, and I've said this earlier, and, and I've got to quantify it, though, but some believe that being black in, in itself is a crime. Right. Uh, you heard the term driving while black. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and that's a true phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Some sleeping while black, black citizens are stopped for traffic stops simply simply because of the black, and a lot of times they they uh, haven't committed any, any, any violation. You know, a, a white friend recently asked me, you know, well, the police officers that shot these people, so on and so forth, they're all running away. Why were they running away? Mm-hmm. And my response was, they're running away because they didn't want to be killed by the police. Right. And it turns out they were killed by the police. Yeah. And right. so police officers have to understand, and a lot of them do, but a lot, a lot of them do not, that their their mantra is to protect and to serve the citizens of their community. Mm-hmm. It is not to go and look and to arrest someone. And some police officers are so quick to pull their gun. Uh, police officers pull their gun probably 99 times more than they actually shoot the gun. Wow. But of those 99 times, probably 90 of those times, the gun doesn't need to be pulled. Mm-hmm. You know, 
some police some police officers are afraid. Yes. They're afraid That's what of it blacks. Is. Yeah. And and they see blacks as a as a threat. And and again, there are a lot of good white police officers. Quite yes. a few. Most yes. of them. I agree. But there's but a lot of them are in law enforcement for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. They're in law enforcement to 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 demean, to intimidate, to arrest, to uh, to exercise authority over a different uh, race, mm-hmm. and, and that can't be overlooked. You know, and and if someone overlooks that, they have their head buried in the sand. There are a lot of bad cops out there, and mm-hmm. they should be eliminated. And more and more. I don't want to say good police officers because, you know, that good and bad is just not a, a comparison. Right. But a lot of right. police officers now are reporting their partners who are doing some things that are wrong. Oh, because good. they don't want to be caught up with something that their partner did, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, if, if I can just use you know, George Floyd as an example, mm-hmm. you know, that police officer with his, with his knee and foot on, 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 the, on, on his, his neck, neck, there are two officers standing there watching that. They're standing there watching, watch right. it happen for, for all that time, and they never did anything. Mm-hmm. But that was a telling point for most cops. They realize now that they, too, can be prosecuted for something their partner do that they could have stopped, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and they don't want to be caught up with something that somebody else is doing. So what I'm told now that what police officers are doing right now, they're telling each other, hey, you know, we got to do things right because I'm, I don't want to go to jail. Oh, with something good. that you do. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> That's a change. You know? Yeah. Thank right. God. Uh, so law enforcement is a, is a tough job. It but is. But so is the military. Military is a tough job. But, you know, but somebody has to do it. If we're, mm-hmm. if we're to have a, uh, a crime-free society, we need police officers. If we're to have a democracy, we need military. Mm-hmm. And we need both. And there's a way to function, a way not to function. May I ask, have you um, given the talk to, I guess, preteens and teens in your life? And if so, what have you said? To teens? When you advise teens or preteens or younger, maybe much younger, what to do when they encounter police? It's known as I, the I've talk. Done the talk I've, I've done the talk so many times in, mm-hmm. in my adult life to, to uh, both as a police officer and as a black man. Mm-hmm. I've given the talk and ex- explained. Right. That anything they want to do, they can do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I became a police officer because when I was a teen, I didn't get into trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, because and, and, and part of the talk is to say that what you do as a teen is going to stay with you the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and based upon you getting a job or getting into college or getting a, a trade or whatever you want to do, that you've got to keep your clean and so on and so forth. And so I, I'm giving a talk and, and I, I received that talk. I, I received that talk when I was when I was a teenager. Wow! You know, so yeah. Now I know Nicola's referring to more. So, what do you tell young people to do, particularly African American young teens and you know twenty something year olds when they encounter the police? Uh, what should they do? What they should do is is don't do anything that would cause the police to feel threatened. Mm. Now, uh, that could be just showing up. A white police officers stopping a white person on the street, in most cases, are not threatened, quite on white. Exactly. Some police officers just encountering a black person feel threatened. So don't make any move or any actions that would cause that police officer to do something that they shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're driving a car, mm-hmm. you know, 
you assume that a police officer is stopping you for, for a reason, stop, comply, keep your hands on the steering wheel, uh, don't make any moves that would, that, would, that would threaten him, and be guided by his, instru- his or her instructions. Hmm. You know, it's unfortunate that you have to tell him that, but, but you need to tell him that because you don't know what police officers are thinking. You know, yeah. and uh, there have been, been a lot of black people killed by police officers, innocently killed by police officers because the police officer felt threatened. Now, these police officers these days are being prosecuted and going to prison. Thank God. Finally, mm-hmm. you know, but that, that's unfortunate. That's that's the status of things right now. You know, yeah, it's just mm-hmm. just to be careful and be cautious. Right. Absolutely. I, if, you, if you don't mind, because I was thinking about your 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 mom and your dad. You know, going back in your childhood and growing up and some of the things that you remember them telling you that really stuck with you, what are some of those things? Let me just give you a little background on my family. My father, my parents, Alice and Clarence Grabbit, mm. had 12 children. The 12 yes. children in my family. There were <laughs> Amazing. In my family. My father was, was drafted uh, in World War II. At that time, he and my mother had eight children. Goodness. And he went off off into the military with eight children. And in return, they had four children later, later on after the war. But And where did you where did the, you fall in, in that line? I'm number seven. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I'm not lucky. I'm not lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you are. So, my, my parents had four boys, a girl, four boys, a girl, then a boy and a girl. We'll have more when we return. And we're back with more from Major General Gravit. Growing up, we, we were a church-centered family. We were involved in church a lot, mm-hmm. both my mother and father. And the mantra to my family was, don't do anything that would denigrate the family, that would ruin the family's name. That was very important to them. Right. So uh, in, the, the kids in my family, in growing up, uh, dropping out of school was never an option. Mm-hmm. Not doing your homework was never an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, not doing your housework was never an option. My parents were strict in terms of that. And so uh, all all the children graduated from high school, all went to college. Nice. Uh, mm-hmm. And so how did that happen? Well, you found a way to get into college. You know, parents didn't have money. They had no savings. They had no tuition. And so you you just found a way to get part-time jobs. And and start out by going to community college, mm-hmm. and, uh, right. and and I did that. You know, even after I returned from the short stint in the army, I came back and, and went to college and uh, and graduated and went to community college and then went to USC, University of Southern California, and got a master's degree there after having received a uh, a bachelor's degree at California State University, Long Beach, and then wow. later on in my career uh, went to. University of uh, Virginia and received a diploma in executive law enforcement and then to Harvard University where I received a, a degree in uh, international security. But my goodness. <laughs> other members of my family uh, uh, achieved similar things. Mm-hmm. Eight of my nine brothers served in the Army. Oh, my. Uh, yeah. And sorry, uh, uh, nobody in the Marine Corps, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I did, I, we did have a brother-in-law that served in the Marine Corps, but Mm-hmm. But, but our parents were the focus of, mm-hmm. of what we did, and uh, uh, and it's the way that we were raised. And uh, church on Sunday, prayer meeting on Wednesday night, uh, you know, Sunday school, early Sunday morning. So 
that was what we did. Keeping you busy. That's what parents, that's the secret, right? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know busy. if it's a secret or not. It's just, it's just the way it should be, you know? Yeah. I'm not saying that all parents need to focus on going to church because just going to church does not make you a Christian. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's true. You're a Christian by, <laughs> you're a Christian by your, 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 your actions and, and, and your deeds. Uh, and so whatever works for the family, they should make that work for their family. You know, and every family is different. Right. Did you did you ever have that moment in your life where you, you know, got that compl- compliment from your mom or your dad where they said, man, I'm, I'm so proud of you? And what was that moment in your life? You know, I, I'm glad you asked that question because probably about maybe 10 years before my mother passed away, she, she wrote me a letter. Oh. She had never written me a letter. Oh. And, you know, I, I was married and had a family, and she wrote me a letter, and in the, it was a short letter, and she told me how proud, I'll use your words, how proud she was of me, and that I had accomplished a lot, and, and she really appreciated what I did, and so on and so forth. And so, and I've kept that letter, and I never shared the letter with any of my brothers and sisters. Oh. I, I thought it was something personal between she and I. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if she had written letters to other members of, of her uh, other children. I don't know if she did or not. That's not my business. Um, but she did. She said she was very proud of me. And I felt so honored to have received that short note from her. That's beautiful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's really, so really she, nice. So she just wrapped up everything that you did and, you know, said, I'm so proud of you. Because <laughs> you've done a lot for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's a long letter. <laughs> we'll be back. So in our last uh, couple of minutes, sir, uh, are you still working with veterans? Part-time mm-hmm. as a volunteer. When Jerry Brown was elected, Governor, he invited me to join his cabinet. Amazing. As the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. I saw that. And so I accepted to serve as his Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and I did that for all during his third term. So I served veterans throughout the state of California, which has the largest veteran population in the nation. Mm -hmm. 10% of all veterans in America are in California. I encouraged all veterans, all veterans, as soon as they become a veteran, as soon as they leave the military, to register with the Veterans Administration, the federal agency. Okay. Whether they have needs or not, they should register with the VA. Because you never know what may happen five or ten years later. When you look at the percentage of veterans who are homeless, what does that look like, especially in a big state like California? It's a tragedy. My job was to get them into facilities. And a lot of veterans do not want to go into facilities. Now, why is that? Part know. of it is because of their mental capacity. Uh, Part of it is that they don't want to be inside. They don't want to follow the rules. Yeah. If you go into a facility, there are rules you must go by. You must shower every day. Mm. No drugs. Mm-hmm. There is a curfew. You must be in by 10 o'clock or midnight. You can't just go in and out 24 hours a day. There's a lot of rules that are designed for their safety. Right. But California, there's there's a, a dozen large uh, nonprofits and assist veterans have empty space. Hmm. Veterans, a lot of veterans refuse to go inside. They re, they, they don't want to, mm-hmm. and for, for for personal reasons. We've had veterans 
that will accept, they have gone into new facilities that are built for veterans. They go into the facilities. They take their belongings with them. These are homeless veterans. Take belongings. And, and sleep on the floor. Oh. And, and won't, won't sleep in the bed. Oh, no. But in the winter, all the National Guard armories are open 12 hours a day for, vet, for homeless veterans. I did not know that. Yes. They're open, and, and, and they're run and at 5 o'clock when the full-time National Guardsmen leave the armory. The armory is taken over by a nonprofit staff, and they check in the veterans mm-hmm. uh, and any, any, any homeless person. Wow. They check them in, and, and they can stay there during the night until the next morning where they get a breakfast, and then they have to leave because then it's right. cleaned up, and then the full-time National Guardsmen come back to work. Mm-hmm. That happens every winter. Well, we will definitely let our audience know and any veteran we meet. I did not know that about the National Guard, the beds there at the facilities at night in the winter. That's great. This is in, in California. In I'm California. about California now. Yes. Yes. This is great information. Well, we don't want to take up too much of your time, Major General. <laughs> but this my is time, been... my time is your time. No, <laughs> you, you have served enough time. <laughs> but but no, this was such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Major General Gravit. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for your service. And yes, we appreciate all these conversations with our veterans. And we've managed to archive a number of them on our website at BeforeYouGo.tv. Yes, please listen to our podcast at BeforeYouGo.tv. And as we say, before we go. We want to remind everyone that these heroes may be right next door. That's right. So please take the time to talk with the elders. You never know that rich history they have to share. There is no time like the present. What What a a gift. gift.